Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Our sermon series uh, that Willie kicked off for us last week in uh, 1 Timothy, we've called The Church's One Foundation. 1 Timothy, it's actually a wonderful book uh, to jump into right after the book of Acts. We think that Paul wrote to Timothy, his younger uh, apprentice in the faith, shortly after he gets out of that Roman jail that we find him in at the end of Acts. And so he's writing to a young pastor, Timothy, uh, who's been left in the city of Ephesus. Remember, we saw Paul go to Ephesus in Acts. And, uh, and now he's left Timothy there as its pastor. And he's writing this letter to Timothy about what makes for a healthy church. What is the foundation uh, for the church uh, that's required of its members, of its leadership? It's got all kind of really practical uh, advice for the church. But this morning, our uh, sermon is going to be, and our reading will be in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 20. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in an unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over for sa- to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. The, uh, the title for our sermon series uh, this, uh, this summer, The Church's One Foundation, uh, comes from a lyric to an old hymn. We sing it sometimes uh, in, in worship. Uh, 
The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, is the the lyric of the hymn. And that is over and over what we're going to see in in Paul's letter to Timothy, is that the foundation of the church, the foundation for everything that the church is called to do and to be, is Jesus Christ and his gospel. Jesus and the good news that he came to bring and to enact. What makes for a healthy church? A healthy church is a church that is centered and grounded in Christ and his gospel. What's a healthy life for us as individuals, as, as couples, as families? What makes for a healthy life? A healthy life, a healthy Christian life is a life that stays grounded and rooted in Christ and his gospel. And this takes work, right? It takes work uh, to defend and to keep central uh, what is meant to be central. I struggle with uh, ADD, attention deficit disorder, have for most of my life. Uh, and it's not terrible. I can, I can learn to manage it. But what that means is that concentration and focus takes work, right? If a uh, squirrel runs by the window, I'm liable to drop what I'm doing and look out at it, right? The concentration, focus takes work. It takes strategy. It doesn't just happen. And I think it's, that's true in our spiritual life that we all have a type of spiritual attention deficit, that all of us have a tendency to be distracted and to move on from what's core, where our focus uh, is called to stay and to rest. We have wandering eyes, And Paul says that for Timothy, for this leader in the early church, that it's going to take work for them to defend what's meant to be central to the life of the church, to maintain their focus, to not be distracted by other teachings and other ideas, some of which may contradict the gospel and and Christ's teaching, others which might just be a distraction from it. But he says to Timothy, this is going to take work. The language that he uses, he says, you're going to need to fight the good fight The translation here, uh, in this translation, says, wage the good warfare, right? You're going to have to fight for this. You're going to have to be willing to fight to keep the gospel central in your own life and in this church. You know, it's interesting. Elsewhere, in this same letter, Paul's going to tell Timothy that you ought not be quarrelsome, right? And that elders in the church shouldn't be quarrelsome. You shouldn't be somebody who goes looking for a fight, But at the same time, here he tells Timothy, you need to be willing to fight for the good fight, that thing that's worth fighting for. In other words, he's saying, look, there's two two ways that you can go wrong here. Right on the one hand, you have people who are just looking for an argument. People who every single thing is a hill on which they ought to die. And you have other people who aren't willing to fight for much of anything. Right? So, you know, to put it in, in kind of physical terms, if you're somebody who's getting in a, a bar fight every weekend, there's something wrong, right? Maybe talk to your pastor. There's something, there's something wrong. But at the same time, if you're somebody who's not willing to fight to defend your family, to defend your children, to defend those things that matter most in this world, then you can fall off of both ends of that. And so look, he's saying to Timothy, look, you shouldn't be willing to fight over every little bit of theological difference or minutia that comes up. But if you're not willing to defend the gospel, then you're not willing to defend that thing that makes the church the church. 
And if you lose that, then over time, the church loses out on its potency, on its power, on that magic spark that makes the church the community that it's meant to be, that makes the Christian life as rich and as full as it's meant to be. Paul summarizes it in this way. There's all these places in 1 Timothy, and I'll try to call our attention to them when we get there. But there's a large section of 1 Timothy that we think is Paul quoting things that were early uh, either creedal statements or liturgical pieces of worship in the early church. Sometimes he'll draw our attention to it when he says something like, this is a trustworthy saying that's worthy of full acceptance in the church. And here he does that a couple times in this passage. But look at this quote, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds, of whom I am the very worst. Right? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is one of those kind of one-verse packages that sums up the whole of the gospel, the power and the magic and the spark that makes Christianity what it is. Right, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and a willingness to say, and you know what? I'm one of them. In fact, I'm the very worst of them that I'm aware of. That Jesus Christ came to save people like me. And it's a statement that's worthy of full acceptance for every man, woman, and child to come to know it and to believe it. There was a man in the uh, early English Reformation, a student at Cambridge named Thomas Bilney. He was notoriously short. He became became known to history as Little Bilney, which, I mean, he's not here anymore. He probably doesn't care, but that's not a great nickname probably. He says this, this is the, the verse that he first read that converted him to the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.15 He was reading it in one of the earliest uh, translations into common language by Erasmus. And he says this, he says, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, O most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. This one sentence, 1 Timothy 1.15, through God's instruction and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed inwardly into myself to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leapt for joy. And after this, the scripture began to be more pleasant to me than the honey from the honeycomb. Don't you want that sweetness, that sweetness of honey to be at the center of your life, to have a relationship with God by faith that's marked by a sweetness? Don't we want our church to be a church that's marked by that kind of sweetness and enjoyment of God? Well, Paul tells us in these verses that if you want that, if you want to keep that sweetness central to your life and to your church, there's three things that you have to keep your focus on. Sin, Grace and gratitude. This way of summing up the gospel. You have to be aware of your sin. You have to keep that in your mind as it's revealed to you. Keep an eye on the incredible grace of God in Christ. And then the gratitude that we owe to God out of that grace. First, 
We have to keep in our awareness uh, the reality of sin as it's revealed by the law of God. In other words, we have to be able, like Paul, to say Christ came to die, came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. We all have to be able to say that, that I am the very worst sinner that I know. There's not uh, bad people out there and I get it right. There's not these people that I'm judging, but I'm the righteous one. No, we have to be able to take up our voice with Paul and the other Christians throughout history in saying Christ Jesus came for sinners. And not just those sinners, but me. I am a sinner in need of salvation. And Paul, uh, just before getting to that, tells us how we come to an awareness of our sin, of our need. And he says that the law of God, God's commandments, are given to us to make us aware of our own sin. The law is given to us to make us aware of how far short we fall of God's perfect righteousness. Look what he says in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You know, there's, there's places if you read Paul where it seems like he has a negative view of the law of God, right? There's places where he talks about how the law is powerless, how the law brings condemnation. And yet here, what he says, he says, look, don't, don't, don't be deceived just because I say some hard things about the law. The law is good. The problem with the law is not with the law. It's not with God's commands. The problem with the law is us, right? It's the fact that it calls us to something that we're unable to do. It asks for a life out of us that we're unable to produce. It asks for a love out of us that we're too selfish to give. And so he says, look, the law is good, if you use it lawfully, right? What the law is good for is revealing ourselves to us. What the law is bad for is salvation, right? The law is powerless not to do anything good, but the law is powerless to save us. The law is powerless to be the thing that makes us right with God. It's powerless uh, to, to give us a way that we can earn God's favor, acceptance, and love. Right? He says, look, the law is not for righteous and good people. The law is for lawbreakers. The law is for sinners in order to lead us to a place where we're aware of our sin. The law is given to us like a mirror to hold up to ourselves, to reveal to ourselves who we really are. Look, every one of us has a tendency to self-justify Right? We all have a tendency to say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than those people. I'm better than that guy. Or, yeah, I was, I was not the kindest. I was not the, the, the most gracious. But what about what these other people did to me? I was justified in what I did. We make excuses. We shift the blame. We compare ourselves to others. And we almost can't help but doing that. We, we love to be righteous. We love to make ourselves look good. And without some kind of objective standard outside of us, we'll continue to self-justify. We'll continue to try to excuse our flaws and our sin. We need something to reflect ourselves back to us. Or else we'll never do, what do they say in AA, the fourth step? Take a fearless moral inventory of our own lives. 
right? That we need to be able to take an honest look at our own lives, to not smudge the record, to not make excuses, to not make ourselves look better than we are. And God's law is his gift to help us do that. To say, yeah, you might be better than if you look at, you know, what you know of yourself versus somebody else's worst moment. But if compared to the righteous standard of what God made you for, what he, what he calls you to, we fall so far short. And so he has this section in verses 8 through 11 where Paul walks through parts of the law. Most commentators agree that in this list here where he says that it's for the unholy and the profane, uh, all of these adjectives that he gives, that what Paul's doing is he's walking through the Ten Commandments. That each one of them is kind of a summary of a breaking of one of the Ten Commandments. The easiest place to see that is in the second uh, section of it where he starts with the fifth commandment, those who strike their fathers and mothers instead of honoring their father and mother. The sixth commandment, for those who murder. The seventh commandment against adultery for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. Enslavers, thou shalt not steal. Liars shall not bear false witness. Right, that he's working through the 10 commandments is a way of saying, look, there's more laws in the scriptures. There's more things that God says, but look, you can't, you don't keep those 10 Right? Every one of us breaks those 10, and if 10 is too many, what did Jesus say? The two majors, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Look, you don't even keep the two. But he walks through the Ten Commandments, saying, look, this is what the law is for. It's for revealing yourself, for revealing these ways that uh, you fail to keep the law, to show you your own sin. To look just at one of them, and one that certainly in our day and age draws some attention, the way that he sums up the seventh commandment, right? To say those who, those who practice sexual immorality and men who practice uh, homosexuality. You know, there's a, I actually think that this is a, a really good translation of, of, of these verses. There's a tendency, I think, for all of us to take these verses, particularly what Paul's saying here about homosexuality, and either... Uh, to make him say more than he's saying, right? That there's a certain kind of person that's outside of God's grace, that's outside of God's mercy. But right, what he's not saying, you know, we tend to think of sexual identity in our day and age as identity and orientation as kind of a class of people. That idea was foreign uh, to Paul's mind and to the way that, uh, that that era thought about these things. Literally what he says is, people who practice homosexuality, right? So he's not saying more than he's saying. He's not saying there's this whole kind of people that are condemned by the law. He's saying, no, there's a practice. There's, a, there's something that you do that God has laws against. But you know what? There's also these other things that God has laws against. And he sums up that as sexual immorality. Essentially, any pursuit of sexual gratification outside the context of marriage and so he's saying, look, it's not like there's really bad sinners and then kind of less bad sinners. He's saying, no, look, every human being has taken their sexuality, their God-given sexuality, and sought satisfaction for it in ways outside of what God has intended. And all of us alike stand under the law of God. All of us alike stand condemned. 
Remember what Jesus said. Jesus, about the seventh commandment, said it's actually a whole lot more than just what you do, right? It's a whole lot more than just don't commit adultery. Okay, check that box off. He said, no, look, any one of us that looks with lust in our eyes and our hearts, it's someone is guilty of adultery, right? The law condemns, the law exposes us. It doesn't expose those people out there so we can feel better about ourselves. It exposes every one of us as a lawbreaker and one who's desperately in need of God's grace. In this verse 15 that we've been kind of centering on, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Right? Think about how controversial and how offensive even it is in our day and age to say that something that you believe is absolutely true, trustworthy, and worthy of full acceptance, right? Worthy that everyone inside and outside the church, men, women, children, everyone ought to believe it. It's worth everyone believing. You go, well, man, how arrogant can you be to think that something you know, something you believe, other people, everyone, in fact, ought to believe. And you'll never get to a place where that makes sense to you unless you understand and are revealed by the law to see that actually everyone is exposed by it, right? Everyone's need is brought low by the law so that we see, yeah, the need is for everyone. The need isn't just for some people. Every single one of us has this need. Paul tells us in verse 13, he says about his own life, he says, formerly I was a blasphemer a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, right? Remember Paul's life before his conversion. He was somebody who was uh, carrying out acts of religious violence, right? He was someone who saw it as his calling to persecute Christians, to, to stone and kill and judge Christians. And he says, remember who I was? I was a persecutor. I was a murderer. In this phrase that's translated here is an insolent trampler. The Greek is hubrestes. It's the, the word hubris, pride, arrogance, right? You might think to yourself, look, yeah, I know we're all a little bit bad, but I'm not Paul bad, right? I'm not, uh, I've never stoned anybody. Uh, I've never murdered anybody. But what Paul's saying is, look, it wasn't my stoning and my murdering. That was the tip of the iceberg of my moral life. Underneath it was a pride, a self-righteousness, a judgmentalism, a hubris that is in every single one of us. And it takes different shapes in each of our lives, right? The, the iceberg pops up above the surface in different ways for each of us. But the massive weight underneath it is our pride. It's our arrogance. It's Adam's sin that set himself up pridefully against God in the garden that all of us have this underlying issue of pride and the law cuts deep and helps us to see the truth of who we really are. But not so that we can just stay stuck in shame and despair and guilt, but so that, like Paul, we can come to a place where we can say, Jesus Christ came to save sinners like me. And so the second thing we need to keep our eye on ever uh, vigilantly is the grace of God in the gospel. Look at what verse 14 says. The grace of our Lord overflowed to me 
with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's grace overflowed the banks to Paul. He poured out his grace onto Paul's life, and it was more gracious, more amazing, more magnificent because of Paul's lack of deserving, because Paul knew just how broken and messed up that he was. Remember what Jesus came, uh, what Jesus said, I came into the world uh, not for the healthy, but for the sick, right? Not, not, not for the righteous, but for the sinners. And so look, all our pride, all our spiritual pride does for us, when we say I'm righteous and don't have any need, I'm moral and not sinful, I'm healthy spiritually, all we miss out on is Jesus, right? Which is to miss out on everything. Right? We become one of those people that Jesus says, you know what, I didn't come for the righteous and the healthy and the strong and the right. I came for the weak and the sinful and the sick and the broken. And as soon as you, like Paul, raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I'm sick, I'm sinful, I'm in need. His grace overflows to you. It rushes towards you. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and only sinners. Jack Miller, a pastor of, uh, he passed away probably 10 or 15 years ago. He had a great uh, saying, a way of describing this. He said, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. Right, cheer up. You're, you know, there's nothing about you that somebody can point out that should be a surprise to you. Right, you are far worse than you think you are, but cheer up because you are more loved than you can imagine, right? And those two things are true at the very same time. Martin Luther told us that in Christ, we are simultaneously just, forgiven, and a sinner. At the very same time, both of those things can be true of you. We tend to think, don't we, that love is reserved for us after we clean ourselves up. Right, that, that, that the law comes before love, and it's after we keep it, after we get just a little bit better, that God's love is on the other side of it. We tend to think that fullness is on the other side of something that we do. If I can get over this addiction, then God will be with me. If I can figure out this pattern in my life, this sin in my life, then God's grace and his love will be given to me. But Paul says, no, 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 the law is good, but it's not good for that. The law is powerful, but it's not powerful for that. In fact, that's precisely what it can't do. It can't show you a way to be good enough that God will love you. All of us in this world tend to struggle with the idea of unconditional, freely given love. We tend to approach love like a contract. If I do this, God will do that. If I do X, God will give me Y. We hardly have a category for a love that's freely given in spite of our sin and brokenness. I found uh, yesterday my mom was cleaning out uh, some of my adolescent closet, which is an interesting uh, thing to have happen. And, uh, and in there, we found in some of my childhood possessions a contract that my grandparents had signed with me as a young kid. I think it was right going into seventh grade. And it was a contract. Uh, you can see both of our signatures there. 
And the contract was about grades, mostly. It was one of those, if you get A's, we'll give you a few bucks. If you get B's, we'll give you a few dollars less. If you get C's, you don't get anything. Uh, And if you get D's or F's, you owe us money. And if you kept reading the contract down in the fine print, it also said that the contract was voided if in high school I got a tattoo or piercings or a mohawk. (laughs) And you go, okay, and it was tongue in cheek. My grandparents loved me. Um, But most of us tend to think of love that way, right? That this is a contract. You do this and I'll love you. You do this and the contract is valid. You break the contract and then I'm not obligated to keep my half of it. We think of love this way, but God doesn't think of love this way. The love of God to us in the gospel is a love given to sinners. Paul says elsewhere that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were hell-bent on being God's enemies, he was so for us as our father that he sent his son to die for us. God's love isn't just unconditional, it's contra-conditional. It's the opposite of what we've earned and deserved for ourselves. It's a contract that he keeps both halves of. This is the grace that overflows into Paul's life. And when this grace overflows into Paul's life, Paul overflows with gratitude for who God is and what he's done. I love, you know, he basically breaks into song in verse 17. Just after he's gotten done telling his story, He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That seems like an end right there. You go, is this the end of this letter? He's just, he's reached such a high point, such a crescendo. Because this this naturally happens for Paul when he sees his sin. And then he sees God's grace. He overflows in worship, in love, in gratitude towards God. He bursts out into song offering this spontaneous worship. The grace of God in the gospel leads to overflowing worship. It leads to this powerful witness. Notice what he says in verse 16. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. The word there is a type, that he was, his salvation is meant to be an example and is a type to the whole world, that God loves sinners like Paul, that this is what his grace and his love looks like. Paul was able to say, look, I'll tell my story because it's a witness, not to myself, but to the grace of God. It leads to real courage to where he can tell Timothy, fight the good fight, just as I have done, right? I love that Paul says, uh, In abandoning this gospel, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Now, when Paul talks about a shipwreck, I think we should believe him. Because in Acts, remember, we saw one of Paul's shipwrecks. We're told earlier that he had three other shipwrecks. That was his third shipwreck. And so Paul says, look, I've been through some stuff, but that's not a a shipwreck. That's not the kind of shipwreck you ought to be worried about. What you ought to be worried about is losing out on the gospel of Jesus, on the thing that matters most in this world, God's grace. You know, the deepest, the people who get this, 
The people who can take their voice and add it to Paul's and saying, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst, are the people who God uses mightily in this world. Look, who were the, who were the leaders of the early church? The main leaders of the early church, it, it was Peter, the denier of Christ, the coward, who was forgiven. And it was Paul, the murderer. Right, It was the two biggest sinners of all the apostles who were then able to say, I'm the worst of sinners, and my story shows the grace of God. What does Jesus say? He says, those who are forgiven much love much. Right, Those who've had the bigger debt forgiven forgive most. That the deepest repenters are the deepest lovers. That those who know their sin the most, know God's grace the most, and then tell it the most boldly and proudly and love the most deeply. And the same is true for a church. A church that knows radical grace and forgiveness will be a church that practices radical love. Right? The more we know God's grace for sinners, the more radical we'll be in our love for others. You know, this is the power behind the Christian life. If you want uh, to show love in your life, if a church is we want to be marked by love, you don't actually get love by telling people to be more loving. Right? You don't get unity. We preach on unity a lot. You don't get unity by telling people to be nice to each other. You don't go, hey, cut it out. <laughs> Have unity. Right? Any more than you do if you're you know, driving and turning around and trying to keep your kids from wrestling in the back seat. Right? You don't get, I mean, maybe the best example of this is the love that comes out through evangelism, right? sharing our faith with those who don't know. How many of you know that Christians are supposed to share their faith? And how many of us do it? Right? It's not because we don't know. It's not because we don't know we're supposed to. It's because that there's, there's a power that has to switch in our heart that makes that doable, right? If you want a church that knows unity, it doesn't mean a church is just trying really, really hard to be unified. It's a church where every single member can say joyfully, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the very worst of them. My sin isn't less than anybody else in the church, than anybody else in my community. I'm the worst. I'm the most forgiven. That humility, that brokenness sets the table for real unity. That's what set, that sets the table for powerful and compelling evangelism. To say, look, I'm not better than my neighbors. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And you're not the worst, I'm the worst. That's the power that makes marriage work. When two spouses can look at one another and go, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And your sin is not worse than my sin. My sin is the problem. I am the worst. And God's grace overflows to me. Radical repentance, radical grace leads to radical love and fruitful lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would meet us uh, in the midst of our sin and brokenness. Lord, that by the power of your law, you would expose us as men and women and children who are in need of your mercy. 
And then, Lord, we pray that we would find your overflowing mercy, your perfect patience, your radical love abounding to us. Lord, we pray that this love would set us free, that it would send us out. That, Lord, we might learn, uh, having been exposed and forgiven, that we might actually learn the sweetness of your word and your law, that we could be able to say with the, with, the, with the psalmist that you've set our hearts free to run in your commands, that you freed us for a life of love and joy and obedience. Lord, set our hearts free to love you by the power of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.